0: My name's Keith. I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, you must be tired of hearing that by now, but um, I um, I am profoundly grateful to be here. It's always a great honor to be asked to do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, and it's it's particularly great to celebrate this magnificent uh, experience of sobriety with uh, fellow alcoholics. I um, you know, and, and I'm going to tell my story, and we we. Will tell in a general way what it, what I used to be like, what happened, and what I'm like now, and um, and I think every time I hear a story, what I hear is a miracle. I have a friend who uh, Ross M, who always says that uh, he says we're not miracles. He said a miracle took place in 1935. We just have a right to get involved in it, and uh, but I think that when a life changes, it's miraculous. Um, I, um, was born in a small town in Ohio, and like I, I always like to remind people that's where AA started, in case you're from California, and, um, I'm the um, eldest son, the second child in a family of 11 children, we're Irish, I won't tell you what church we went to, but you picked up on that already, and, uh, it has something to do with bingo, but I won't say anything else, and, um. And I would have told you that I grew up in poverty because from the time I can remember, I was a fear-filled kid. I was a kid who had something lived under his bed, and I knew what it was there for. It was waiting for me to dangle my little legs over the side of the bed, and I was history. I knew that. And it was only there at night. During the day, it hung out in the closet. So I used to get my clothes out at night. Nothing ever matched. And... Um, and I would try to lay as close to the center of the bed as I could because in the morning I'd look, and it looked like there were lines on the sheets where he had reached up trying to get me. And I knew one day everybody would be at breakfast, and they'd say, Where's Keith? Oh, no, the thing under the bed got him. And, uh, and I knew I'd be history. And that's just the way I lived. I lived in constant terror. And I didn't realize it. I didn't know that that's what it was. I thought that was normal. It wasn't until fear left me that I knew that I had lived in fear. You know, I was a pretty good little athlete. I played baseball and did a number of things. And uh, But the, uh, one of the great impediments that I had as a child was uh, I had a horrible speech impediment. No one could understand much of anything I said. And uh, and we didn't have speech therapists. At least we didn't have them where I was. I'm sure they had them someplace. But uh, But I did have a nun who, in the first grade, took a very great interest in my speech problem. And the only people who could understand me at all were the, uh, were, were the people who loved me, and they, they figured out my language. And uh, so this nun took me over to the library, and uh, we checked out. I don't know if you remember those big red records with the, uh, all these great speeches on them and everything. Well, I checked out these big red records. Uh, she said to the librarian, we would like someone who speaks good English. And so uh, I got two big records of Winston Churchill's speeches. And I was told he did a reasonable job with English. And um, so my job was to go home and I would play a sentence and I'd pick up the arm of the record player and repeat it and then play it and repeat it and play it and repeat it. I was the only kid in the Ohio Valley with a British accent. And... (laughs) But I literally had to learn how to talk. And to this day, I concentrate on forming words. And, um, but, you know, uh, uh, the thing that really happened to me was another miracle. I had a grandmother who had a great love for St. Jude. And, you know, St. Jude's a patron saint of difficult cases. And, uh, and I was going, and I was, I guess, 11 years old. I was going in to have my appendix taken out. And uh, she slipped a medal of St. Jude on my nightgown. And so they wheel me into the emergency room and they clamp my tongue, or into the operating room and they clamp my tongue. And they said they had made a mistake back then. Doctors admitted their mistakes because they didn't worry about lawsuits and things. And uh, and my tongue was split. And they sewed my tongue up. And when the swelling went down, I could talk a little bit. And so uh, you know, my life was based on miracles from early on, but I just never recognized them as that because as a fearful kid. I was spiritually ill. Um, I loved the church I went to. I would never go by St. Mary's that I didn't run in and visit with Jesus. I said, "I want to go play ball. If you want to come and watch, you can." And uh, and, uh, and and I, I I I had an example around me. I mean, very very spiritual people around me—aunts, uncles, grandmother—just a really great bunch of people. And. Um, and like I say, I I worked very, very hard at being accepted, and uh, it seemed like I never measured up in my eyes. And uh, so I, I wasn't very good at being good. I have a sister two years older than me, and uh, she's an absolute genius, valedictorian, all of that, you know. And uh, she's now a nurse and uh, just a marvelous lady. But uh, she... Um, when I'd get into the class, she'd been in two years before, the nun would say, oh, you're Patty's little brother. And I knew exactly what she was expecting. Yeah. She was expecting me to be smart like Patty, and it wasn't going to happen. And, uh, and so I decided if I couldn't be good, I was going to be bad. Right? So I'm in high school, and I start my own gang. Right. Now, we're sitting around trying to figure up a name. All the good names were taken. And um, we were studying history at the time. And uh, we were studying the great composers. And we were studying Wolfgang Mozart, so we became Mozart's Wolfgang. And uh, <laughs> I was Mozart, and um, one of the guys, Mike, a friend of mine named Mike, owned a 1938 Cadillac LaSalle hearse, so we drove around in a hearse. And, um, and we, we planned our first job. We we're going to knock off this uh, convenience store across the street from the high school where we used to go buy our cigarettes. <laughs> um, well, we didn't actually knock off the store. What we did was we stole a watermelon from in front of the store. And we went across the tracks, and we ate the watermelon before we went to school. We were really bad. And um, during the course of the day, all six of us snuck over and paid for the watermelon. Guilt's a terrible thing when you're trying to be a hoodlum. And... Um, so the next morning we go over to buy our cigarettes we used to buy those little cigars between the acts I don't know if anybody remembers those but, but um, the old man said boy sit down he said give it up he said you're not good at being bad give it up you know so we failed and um, I was suspended a number of times in high school as a matter of fact the, uh, the school board was made up of the pastors of the various it was a central catholic high school and the school board was made up of the pastors of the various parishes one day I get a call from Monsignor Close, and he said to me, Keith, are you all right? I said, yes, Father, I'm fine. Why? He said, well, I was at the school board meeting. Your name never came up. I thought maybe you were sick. And, <laughs> you know, but basically what I was was a mischievous kid. For example, we had a deal, you know, in biology class. Remember when you did the experiment about how long frogs could stay underwater and breathe through their skin? And, uh, you know, and so I made book that my frog could stay down longer than everybody else's frog. And I filled mine up with mercury, and I won. And the frog was pushing away, but he wasn't getting up there. And I pulled the frog out, and I pulled the mercury out, pulled the mercury out. He was all right. He was better off than the frogs that we dissected the next day. But, um, but, um and the nun was a little upset, so uh, what I had to do was come in and serve detention, and and I had to come in and clean up the biology lab the next morning. Well, I lived 20 miles from school, so I had to get up real early in the morning and hitchhike down and clean up the thing. And remember the Rubber Man Adam, where they take all the parts out and you had to name them. Usually right after breakfast. And um, and well, uh, Adam was there, and part of what I was supposed to do was clean up Adam, so I cleaned up Adam, and I had Adam's bladder. And I went downstairs to the home ec lab, and I mixed up a little bit of yellow uh, food color, and I filled Adam's bladder, and I put him in there. <laughs> so the nun's going through all the organs, and she, uh, heart, lung, liver, bladder, and this yellow stuff runs down her sleeve. <laughs> she was so cool. She said, Mr. Lewis, I'd like to see you after class, please. I mean, she never like. Uh, <laughs> but my favorite was was sister victoria good old sister victoria sister victoria was a librarian and you served a lot of detention in a library and i served a I spent a lot of time with sister victoria and um and she she was an odd duck she'd say weird things like every boy's a prince and every girl's a princess because we have a father who's a king you know, we'd run around calling each other Prince Keith and Princess Mary and things like that. And uh, I was such a cynic. And, uh, and when you served attention with Sister Victoria, you made rosary beads. They had wires and pliers and uh, little beads and metals. And, you know, you made them. And, um, and uh, I, I made a lot of rosary beads. And she just used, used to put me behind a magazine wrap. She said I was a prince, but I was contagious. And... Uh, <laughs> So I'm back there making rosary beads, right? Mine were different. Your average rosary bead has 10 beads to a decade. All mine had 11. And, um, and they take these beads and send them to the missions all over the world, right? So after like four years, there's hundreds of mutant rosary beads all over the world. And, uh, and you know, and I'm g- getting ready to graduate, and if she didn't know what I'd been doing, it would have been like I wasted four years of my life, So I went to her, and I said, Sister, you know what I've been doing the last few years? She said, Yes, you sly little prince. She said, You've been making rosaries, and you've been putting extra beads in all the decades, and I know why. And I remember thinking, I hope she tells me, because I have the foggiest idea why I do (laughs) She said, People all over the world are praying extra prayers, and God's going to give you all the credit. Don't you just hate people like that? (laughs) And then she terrified me. She terrified me. This kid with his speech impediment and all of that. In my head, I still had a speech impediment. And um, she said to me, she said, uh, when I met you, I knew you were a very special child of God. And so she put a medal of St. Jude on her long beads, you know, the kind they wore to bang on the desk when you're taking tests and things. And, um, And she said, every time I get to this medal, I say a special prayer for you. She said, you're going to go around the world and tell God's children how much he loves them. And I was terrified. I didn't want a, an assignment like that. That is not what I was in this thing for. I was in this thing for me. right? And uh, and much to everyone's surprise, I graduated. And, um, and I had no earthly idea what to do with my life. It seemed to me everybody in my class knew what they were going to do but me. And uh, so my thought was... I'll go away. If I go away, they'll think I'm doing what it is I'm supposed to be doing. And the way you went away, you either went to school, and there wasn't a big chance of that, or you go into the military. Back then, all the men went to the military. It wasn't if. It was where and when. And uh, so I um, took my very first inventory. You know, I took my shirt off. I stood in front of the mirror, and I flexed my muscles, turned sideways, and stuck my chest out. And I told you I was 5 feet 1 inches tall, and I weighed 113 pounds. I was a born killer. So I went over to Wheeling, West Virginia, and joined the Marine Corps. Now, the problem with that was that I was 17 years old, and my parents had to sign for me. So the recruiter shows up at my house with the papers, and my parents lost it. My father said, Son, are you sure you want to do this? I said, Dad, I thought about this a long time. Hour and a half I thought about it. <laughs> and, uh, and then my mother was crying. She just came apart, God rest her soul. She just crying. So under protest, they signed the papers, and all night I heard my mother crying. My father was consoling her, and she kept saying, Scott, don't kill him! Don't kill him!" And he said, don't worry, Pat, they won't take him." So with that vote of confidence the next day, <laughs> we got in a taxi cab, and we went to Wheeling, West Virginia, and they put me on a Greyhound bus to Pittsburgh, 60 miles away. It was the second longest trip I'd ever been on. Once I went to Cleveland, but the game was rained out. And... Um, <laughs> And here I am, this terrified 17-year-old kid, right? And so I get up there, and um, it was a bad year, and they took you if you had a pulse. So that afternoon, I was sworn in the United States Marine Corps, and there were three guys from Pittsburgh who were also sworn in. And uh, they said to me, they said, hey, kid, we got about 10 hours before the train leaves. We're going to go over and have a sandwich and a beer. And I said, that's just what I was thinking. See, the way I dealt, the way I dealt with life was I watched what you did, and I did it so quickly it looked like we were doing it together because I had no earthly idea what to do with life. And so they take me over to this bar in Pittsburgh, and we walk in, and the place is filled with real men, you know the kind. And they all have real women with them, real women hanging around with real men, and guys like me used to get what was left. And, uh, and, and so we go over, and we sit down at the table, and a bartender comes over, and he said, what do you boys want? My first thought was, oh, my God, a quiz. You know? I thought about life was when you least expected it, somebody was going to say, take out a blank sheet of paper, put your name in the upper left-hand corner, and they're going to ask a bunch of questions. Now, I studied all the time, but I never seemed to study the right stuff. And uh, I never knew how to answer questions, so I did what I always did. I watched what they did, and they ordered a beer, so I did too. And then a the guy came back, and he said, what do you boys want? And I watched them, and they ordered a beer, so I did too. Then the miracle happened. Somewhere between the second and third drink, I had a spiritual awakening. I stood up. I didn't mean to stand up. I couldn't keep from standing up. And I looked, and it seemed to me the floor was about six feet four inches below me. And, you know, the muscles are rippling through my body, and my shoulders are out to here. And uh, that mind had been filled with fear and terror. It was like, like a bolt of lightning. Boom, it was crystal clear. And I remember thinking, it's so simple. Why didn't I see it before? For the first time in my life, I saw the big picture. Then I looked around this place, and my heart broke. It was filled with a bunch of pathetic, sniveling little men. And all of them had women with them or looking at me with their hungry eyes. You know how they do it. And uh, <laughs> so I went from table to table filling people in on life. It was absolutely amazing. I mean, it's as though I was infused with all this knowledge. And they kept buying me beers, and I kept filling them in. And uh, and so finally it was time to leave, and the guy said to me, "They said, hey, kid, uh, we got to go. We've got to catch the train. And it seemed to me that the people were saying, please don't go. We just discovered you. And, uh, and I said, no, I have to go and make the world safe for democracy. So, uh, so we went and got on the train. Now, I assume we got on the train because I woke up on the train. To this day, I believe that's still a pretty reasonable assumption. I, will, I was a philosophy major, and logic uh, comes into play here. And I was lying on the floor of the Pullman coach they had provided for me. And someone had wet the floor I was lying on. And whoever had done it had wet me, too. And, um, and we're in Washington, D.C., which is three times as far from my home as I'd ever been. And I got up, and I changed my clothes. And I got off the train, and the guys were standing there. They said, what took you so long? I didn't share. And, um, and you know, I always say that was my first drinking experience, but it wasn't. It was my second. My first drinking experience happened when I was five years old. I was at home. I didn't go out a lot when I was five. And, um, and my dad was watching myself and my brother, dumb Denny. Denny's a year younger than me. He was four. And, uh, and mom was either to bingo or having a baby or something. And, um, and dad was watching us. And, I, and there was rarely alcohol around our house. One, we never had much money. And number two, both of my parents had alcoholic parents, so they were pretty much afraid of Alcohol, But there were a few beers in the refrigerator, and I guess Dad thought it just might be funny. So he got a beer for himself, one for me, and one for dumb Denny. And, and he gave us those little jelly glasses. Remember the ones with the cartoon characters on it? Yeah, yeah well, mine had Superman on it. I don't know if that is significant or not, but, uh, but I drank my beer, and nothing happened to me. Denny, on the other hand, was having a spiritual awakening. He's rolling around under the table singing Mary Had a Little Lamb and other drinking songs, and... Uh, <laughs> dad wrestled under the ground. He got his clothes off and put his jammies on him and he took him up and put him in his bed and he said, now don't tell your mother about this and I'll take you to the movies on Saturday. Now, they don't negotiate with you a lot when you're five, so I'm game, but Denny was having a time of his life. He's singing and carrying on and having a time of his life. And I'll never forget this. Little Denny stood up in his crib and he urinated on the floor. <laughs> you know? And I remember thinking, you know, there's a kid who's powerless over alcohol whose life has become unmanageable. <laughs> and You know, it's the saddest story. Denny never made it. It's just the saddest story. He grew up and did some really odd things. I'll give you some example. Denny went to one university. He had one major. You know, and he graduated in four years. I never heard of such a thing, right? Four years, you know. And then he went to one graduate school. He graduated first in his class. He was offered like nine jobs. He took one. You know. He retired at 51 years of age as senior vice president in a large international corporation. And the strangest thing of all was he married one woman. Now, here's a guy who had the world in the palm of his hands when he was four years old, and he just let it slip through his fingers. (laughs) I had to work at this thing. And um, so, you know, uh, the guy said to me when I got off the train, he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to find something to drink. And I did. I found a bar, and I drank breakfast, and we got on a train, and I drank till we got to a place called Yamasee, South Carolina. If you hadn't been there, I wouldn't bother. But um, I I don't know what happened, uh, whether they moved the bottom step. Something happened, but I fell off the train, and there was a very rude man there they'd sent to greet us. And um, he was hurling obscenities at myself and the other young men who went down there to die for their country. And... uh, and I got out and brushed myself off, and I tried to explain to this Cretan that he'd get along with us a lot better if he treated treat us with some respect. He never seemed to grasp exactly what it was I was trying to tell him, you know. And they say you can learn from every experience. And what I learned from that experience is you can do a lot of push-ups drunk. And, and, and in case you're interested, you can do push-ups and throw-up at the same time. And, uh... And they say you can be grateful for everything. I'm grateful I wasn't doing sit ups, but uh... <laughs> and the next night they, or the next morning they put us on a bus and they took us across to Paris Island, South Carolina. And I must tell you I fell I absolutely fell in love with the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, they, they were you know, there was all the screaming and all that stuff, but it didn't seem to faze me much. I just fell in love with it. And uh, you know, I told you some of my story and I ended up Winning Dress Blues Award, Outstanding Man. Every promotion I got was a meritorious promotion. I was going to spend the next 100 years in the Marine Corps if they'd keep me. And then I did what I did in every area of my life. I ended up violating every principle associated with that way of life. I think alcoholics are probably the most enthusiastic people I've ever met in my life. And, you know, we, we often throw ourselves into a way of life. And what I did was threw myself into the Marine Corps, and I ended up violating every principle associated with being a Marine. I did the same thing as a married man. I did the same thing in everything I ever wanted because I was on a downward track. I was suffering moral degradation as a result of the de- deterioration of my spiritual existence. I... Um, I ended up getting out of the Marine Corps and turned down the commission and got out and the thing I'd worked so hard for and everything. And uh, worked in the steel mill for a little while, and then I ended up going up the Baltimore area, and I worked at a Jesuit theologate, and I was tutored and had some really magnificent things, but I was very, very drunk a lot of the times. You know, I mentioned earlier today about the um, Ignatius Loyola's spiritual exercises, and here I am living in a Jesuit theologate. And this was during the time of the second vatican council and there was a great theologian by the name of john courtney murray who had been in rome during the uh the uh, uh meetings and he came back to do his uh his uh retreat and you knew when someone was on retreat and a lot of times they were observing silence and uh and so you don't speak to them and i'm walking around they had a path called the mile path that went around the uh, college and uh, it's a place where the men would go and do their last four years of training in theology and I'm walking around the mile path and I pass this guy and he looks at me and I don't say anything to him I'm obsessing about me it's about me what's going to happen to me uh, and the fears were welling up inside of me I pass him the second time he stopped and he spoke it surprised me he said uh you're contemplating the existence of God, aren't you, son? And I lost it. I said, look, pal, that's not how you talk to eminent theologians. I said, look, pal, there isn't a God, and if there is, he's not interested in my life. And he took me, and he got both of my arms, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, son, he said, look, if you don't want to seek God, get out of here. This is not a fun place. He said, but, if you decide you want to Experience the existence of God fasten your seatbelt you're in for the ride of your life he said but don't do yourself the disservice of being an agnostic because being an agnostic means you can't know the most important thing there is for you to know and that's the relationship to the God who created the universe and created you and I just said something probably off color and stormed away now what makes that significant Some years later, after I got sober, I was given a scholarship to Georgetown University. And I'm studying philosophy and theology. And the professor said, Mr. Lewis, would you please stand up and read from the Yale Lectures page such and such? And I stood up and I read that exact argument that Murray had delivered at the Yale Lectures. And I read that, and I'm sober now a year and a half. And I burst into tears. I'm standing in front of this class, sobbing. And the professor said, Mr. Lewis, it's a moving article, but it's not that moving. And, uh, you know, after class, I went to his office, and I explained his story to him. And he wept. Nothing is wasted in God's world. Nothing. You know, I ended up getting married to some poor, unfortunate woman. And uh, we had our first daughter, her name was Kelly. She was born. She was born in a hospital. My wife was an emergency room nurse, and she was born in a hospital she worked in. And then um, nine months later, she's pregnant again. I'm passed out on the living room floor watching a test pattern, which is, was one of my favorite things to do. You know, I feel bad for people now that cable's here because, but you know, we used to watch a test pattern, and, uh, and, and you watch it in your underwear. And... Um, and uh, and my wife decides she's going to have this baby, and I'm in an absolute – I'm passed out. She can't wake me up. She's in a panic, so she called our neighbors over, so they threw water on me and everything. And so finally I come to, and there are three people staring down at me with that look of disgust. And, uh, and I jumped up, and I ran in, and I, I got dressed, and I threw my wife in the car, and I turned on the blinkers, and I spat across Washington, D.C., And drunk, I took her into the emergency room where in the hospital I worked and demanded they take care of her. It must have been so horribly embarrassing. And uh, and our baby was born, and she was uh, almost three months premature. She weighed barely over a pound. And uh, I uh, did the only thing I knew how to do. I ran home and went to bed. And my wife called me in tears and said, please come. She said, I think our baby's going to die. I need you. And I must tell you, gentlemen, I was in a rage. I was in an absolute rage. And I drove back across town, and I went in, and I had long since given up on God. Life was about coincidences. And I walk in, and the chief resident on a neonatal nursery walked up to me. Her name was Mary Kate. Mary Kate had gone to high school with me back in Ohio. What a, what a coincidence. And she said, three days ago, we ordered an experimental machine. We put it together yesterday. I'd like to put your daughter on it. She said, I don't believe she's going to make it. And even if she makes it, she'll probably be retarded from lack of oxygen. She had a horrible case of hyaline membrane disease. And this machine was a negative respirator. And uh, I understood it was like one of the first on the East Coast. And uh, so I said, what does her mother think? Because, you know, there was nothing left inside of me to make decisions. And she said, look. And I looked, and my wife's walking up down the hall in a state of shock with a 1,000-yard stare. And I said, do whatever you think is best, Mary-Kate. And so they put this kid on a machine. We had a, a, an office across from the neonatal nursery that we used because we did a lot of genetic testing with these kids. And, um, and at night, I sat in there with the lights out and the door slightly ajar, and I watched this little thing struggle for every breath she'd actually retract off this little It's unbelievable and the third night is particularly uh, crucial and um, in my uh, I watched my wife go in and baptize our little baby because I didn't think she'd live through the night and you know what's sad is that I knew what to do because I had a father who's probably the greatest father and greatest husband who ever lived and I know what my dad would have done he'd have gone in and he'd have put his arm around his wife, and he would have said, Pat, with God, we can do anything. So I knew what to do. There was just nothing left inside of me. There was no character left, no nothing, no strength, nothing. It had all dissolved in alcohol. And in another panic, I ran out of the office, and I ran down to that chapel. Like I told you earlier today, I got on my knees, and I begged God, please let her live. If you let her live, I'll do anything. If you let her live... I'll stop drinking. And I was drunk in 12 hours. I drunk when I thought drinking would kill my little girl. The God I serve doesn't kill a little girl because her dad's sick. And, uh, you know, that same little girl is an honor graduate from Auburn University. And she lives over in Alabama now. And uh, about four years ago, I was down uh, speaking at a conference in Pensacola. And I, uh, it was early in the morning, and I called her, and I said, Sweetheart, how are you? And she was crying. And I said, What's the matter? She said, Daddy, I have kidney stones, and it's causing contractions, and I'm afraid my little girl is going to come early, and I'm afraid she'll be just like me. And I was able to say to her, Sweetheart, if she's just like you, you'll be the luckiest parent in the world. And an AA friend loaned me her car, and I drove for three and a half hours, and I held my little girl, and we wept together, and we prayed together and her little girl did survive to term and she's absolutely magnificent just like her mother and uh, but you know uh, she was sick for a long long time and I really wanted to be there and I was incapable of being present for anybody there was nothing left inside of me that had anything to do with strength at all and uh, you know, about three years later, finally her mother said to me, we can't live like this. She said, I, we, our apartment was near the hospital she worked in, and she'd stick her head out the door to see if the place was on fire because I'm passing out with cigarettes, I'm drunk. It's awful. And she said, um, uh, we can't live like this. She said, either I take the children and go or you go. And I packed a couple bags and left. And I went to where I needed to go. It's the basement of the house in the Skid Row section of Washington, D.C. I could tell this story. I, uh, I was a zoo drinker. I don't know if there are any zoo drinkers here, but uh, the zoo was right down the street from where I was living, the National Zoo. And I used to go in, and I'd, I'd fill up a Tupperware glass with whatever I had, and I'd put an ice cube in it so I wouldn't be an alcoholic. And, uh, <laughs> and I'd put the lid on it and burp it, you know, like you're supposed to. And, um, and I used to. my favorite place was to go down and drink in the ape cage. They had bleachers, right? And my favorite was an orangutan. And I used to sit up in the top of the bleachers, and I'd watch this orangutan. And he was my kind of ape because, uh, you know, I, families would come in there, you know, mother, father, two little kids. And one day this orangutan grabs up a whole handful of dropping and pelts his family. And I, get, I, I stood up and applauded. And, uh <laughs> And then, and then one day the orangutan looked me in, at me in utter disgust and turned around and walked away. And I lost it. I stand up and started cursing the orangutan. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the keeper came over and said, Sir, you'll have to leave. I said, You know, we can't have drunks hanging around here. You'll have to leave. And so that was the end of my social drinking. And uh, <laughs> I went home, and, and I went to where I needed to go. And I, I explained it earlier. I... Uh, Stood in front of the mirror on May the 13th, 1973, with one thought in mind, and that was to die. And then that miracle happened. And I picked up the phone and I made a phone call. And I spoke to someone. And they said, Do you need help stopping? And I was sure, since I had thrown that bottle and broken it, that I didn't need help stopping. And I had to find $300. It was a really expensive place, it was $650 for the month. But I had to take $300 out there And I had no money of course But I had a car It was a real nice car It was a 1969 Opal station wagon And it was It was paid off And so I found the title and I went to the bank And amazing things began to happen to me You know I pulled up to the bank And I went in I put a nickel in the parking meter And Beethoven's 5th Symphony began to play out of the parking meter and I was so taken with it, I stood there until my 12 minutes were up. And I put another nickel in it, and I could have saved the money because it was playing in the bank, too. And so so I get the $300, and I go home, and I'm getting out of the car, and I'm kind of sick at my stomach. And I lean up against a tree, and it's playing out the knot of a tree. It was a very musical day. And um, somehow, a couple of days later, I knew it was time to go. And I gathered up my things, and I got in the car, and I started to drive. 30 miles to this treatment center It was out on the Potomac River in a, And a um, place called Seneca House And uh, I'm driving and I could only go about a mile And the anxiety was so bad And my heart would be pounding and everything Now they call them anxiety attacks And you get to take Valium <laughs> Back then they were running fits And um, so I would stopped the car And I got out of the car I'm running up and down the side of the road I'm sweating, I'm, my heart's pounding and everything I wet my pants, I'm changing my clothes outside the car on Route 29 outside of Washington, D.C., and my 5 Theta Key fell out of my pocket. And I wonder what happened to the kid with all the potential. And I'll tell you, potential melts in alcohol. And I somehow made it. It took me almost four and a half or 5 hours to drive 30 miles. And I get there, and they take me in, and they said, uh, go out and get on the bus. You're going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And... Uh, And I had no idea Alcoholics Anonymous existed. I thought it was a religious organization we did away with when we advanced scientifically. And um, so I get on a bus, and we go to my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I get off the bus, and I walk up to the door, and there's a gentleman there. They called him a greeter. And he said, you're new, aren't you? And I thought, oh, my God, they're psychic. And... um, (laughs) I realized I wasn't blinking. I didn't blink for a long time, and my eyeballs dried out, but I didn't blink. And, um, and he said uh, to me, and he shook my hand firmly, and he looked me in the eye. He was an eye guy. I was a shoe guy, but he was an eye guy. And wherever I put my head, he seemed to have his head there looking me in the eye. And he said, you know, son, if you keep coming here, you never have to drink again. And I wanted to scream at him, you don't know me, mister. I'm a man who drinks when he thinks drinking will kill his little girl. But you know he did know me more importantly he knew what I had and more important than that he knew what you have you have what I need and he took me in and he introduced me to an old lady who got me a half a cup of coffee and sat beside me and patted me and halfway through the meeting I looked at her and that old face exploded into a smile and she said honey you never have to be alone again and I started to cry because what I had been alone what I had been was alone basically forever the only time i belonged anywhere was between the second and third drink and you know i've never had to be alone and i've never had to drink you people keep your word you really keep your promises and i was thrown into this magnificent experience called alcoholics anonymous and early on early on i fell in love with it I was in that treatment center a month. And after about two weeks, I came back and I said to my roommate, I said, I love those people. I'd like to be just like them. And he said, my God, they brainwashed you. <laughs> and I said, you know, if anybody's brain needs washing, it's mine. And, um, and, you know, one year later, I'm celebrating my first AA birthday. And I look in the back, and my old roommate's back there. He's got a patch on his eye. And I knew how his year went. My year was absolutely magnificent. I was crazy as an outhouse rat, but but it was magnificent. I'd studied in France. When I left France, I took a train to Italy. I lived in a monastery for a while. Uh, I mean, I did things that can't happen to a guy like me. I just spent a couple of weeks in a monastery. I toured Rome. I spent a lot of time in Vatican City. It was just magnificent. I met AA members over there who remembers the. American Embassy, the British Embassy, the Australian Embassy, wonderful people. I met the man who later translated the book Alcoholics Anonymous into Italian. And, uh, and he brought it, uh, and they gave it to Lois in 1980 in New Orleans, the International. And uh, it was just a magnificent year. And, uh, and I was still living down on the skids and everything, but I was getting my financial life in shape. My sponsor had me do a budget And he said, I want you to budget, and I want you to budget by priority. And I wrote down the things I was supposed to do and uh, pay. And uh, he said to me, your child support is third. He said, the biggest moral obligation you have is to support your children. The first check you write every month is your child support. And I had to move it up to number one. And uh, those were the kind of lessons that I was taught. And... um, and uh, the way they did it in Washington when you celebrated your AA birthday and the night before this they had the uh, the uh, Washington area intergroup banquet and they had two speakers one was a gentleman who had gotten sober in India and he had translated the big book into Sanskrit he was a professor of economics at the University of Buffalo he told one of the most moving stories I ever heard in my life and the other one was a woman was in both AA and Al-Anon from Detroit and she told a really nice story and after the banquet was over my sponsor Dan took me upstairs to meet them and uh, I met the man I was very impressed with him and shook his hand and I thanked him and told him he made a difference in my life and then I went over to the woman she looked at me and had a beautiful smile on her face and she said there's something special about today son what is it and I started to cry. I said, one year ago today, I was in the process of killing myself. And she got up and hugged me. She's a big, heavy woman, so she had really a hugger. And, uh, and I, I left there, and I went. I was standing on the corner of Woodley Place and Wisconsin Avenue, and I still had the tears on my cheeks. And I heard a woman say to this old gentleman, ask him, ask him. So this gentleman came over to me, and he said, sir, are you all right? And I said to him, I've never been more all right in my life. I said, tomorrow I get to celebrate one year of sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I was only four blocks from where I had almost killed myself. But I was a world away from where I'd been. And a man put his arm around me and said, that's wonderful. God must love you an awful lot. I didn't want to hear too much of that stuff, but uh, it was nice of him. And he wasn't in the fellowship, I don't think. He was just a kind man. The world's filled with kind men and women. And the next day, the way we celebrated our birthdays was our home group would give us the meeting, and we could have whoever we wanted to speak. And I had a woman, Dorothy, who answered the phone when I called for help, and I had my sponsor, Dan, speak. And Dan said, Keith did everything wrong this year except two things. He didn't pick up a drink, and he went to 500 meetings of alcoholics and and his roommate of mine was in the back. And I knew what kind of year he had had. It had been very different in my year. He wouldn't let you brainwash him. And he was the only guy in there younger than me. He was two years younger than me. He owned two farms down on the eastern shore in Maryland. He had a Corvette outside. I had an Opal station wagon. Uh, he was tall, which turned me off immediately. And, um, and the women loved him. Right? He had it all. I had nothing. One year later, he'd lost his farms to bankruptcy. He had wrapped a, the uh, uh, Corvette around a telephone pole drunk. Uh, he ended up in the uh, Howard Pavilion, St. Elizabeth's Hospital, not Howard Pavilion, but St. Elizabeth's Hospital for the Insane. And someone had gouged, gouged his eye out with an ice pick. And he came to me after the meeting. And he shook my hand in a very arrogant and distant way. And he said, I'm glad for you because you like this sort of stuff. He said, but don't you think you're going to too many meetings? (laughs) And I wasn't trying to be cruel. I was trying to drive a point home to him. And I said, you know, one of us got one eye and one of us got two eyes. I was trying to show him the difference between falling in love with your way of life and not falling in love with it. You know, he was dead before I celebrated two years of continuous sobriety. You know, and that first year was absolutely an insane year. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do any of this stuff, you know. And uh, I couldn't shop. I couldn't be in a place that was crowded. I remember I used to shop with one of those little red baskets. Remember the little red baskets, you know? And I'd run in, I'd grab a little red basket, and I'd run around and pick ten things. You're allowed ten things for this fast. thing. So I'm going through this thing. And I guess it was a slow day, and a guy's there, he checking me out. He said, sir, you have 11 things. And I said, you're right, I don't deserve to shop here. And um, he said, oh, it's okay, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. And I turned around, there's a woman standing behind me with a loaf of bread. And I said, he caught me sneaking 11 things for a 10-thing line. And, uh, you know, she's looking at me, and all she wants to do is buy a loaf of bread and go home. She doesn't need this And. And so the manager came over and said, Is there a problem? And I said, Sir, you got to promote him. He caught me sneaking 11 things through a 10 item line. And I burst into tears and ran out. It was absolutely crazy, right? 50 days of continuous sobriety. Now that was okay, but what I did next was really dumb. I went over and told my sponsor what happened. He said, Get in the car. So I figured we're going to go to a meeting, but we're not. We're driving up Wisconsin Avenue, and there's a Safeway, and he starts to pull, and I said, no. <laughs> he said, go in and apologize. So I went in, and the manager ran up and said, sir, are you all right? And I said, yes, I am. I said, I've come to apologize, and I want to pay for those groceries. And he said, we have them right here. And he let me pay and everything, and uh, and I went out and got in the car with my sponsor, and he said, I want you to shop there for the next three months. Yeah. Right? So when I'd go through the line, if that guy was there, he'd go one, two, three, four, ha <laughs> ha. And you know, I couldn't sleep. And so one night, and what I used to do is drive around to the monuments in Washington, D.C., and read them. And what was really nice was I had the same problem Dick had. I could never remember the next day what they said the day before. So it was like it was the first time I ever saw him, and uh, it was wonderful. And so I'm over reading the Jefferson Memorial, and I lay down in the grass. I'm looking at the stars. I go sound asleep. And I realized that the problem was I couldn't sleep. I was trying to sleep in the wrong place. So I went home. I got a sleeping bag. I came back. I laid it out on the grass. I lay down, and I'm just starting to drift off, and somebody's kicking my foot. It's a park policeman. He said... What are you doing? And I told him. I told him that I, I couldn't sleep. And that I was I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm recovering from alcoholism. I can't sleep. I said, This is the only place I found I could sleep. And he looked at me and he said, I'll tell you what, son, he said, if you need to sleep, you come down here. You know, every few days when I'm about to lose my mind from not sleeping. I'd get my sleeping bag and go down to a Jefferson Memorial. And sometimes I'd be laying here and I'd hear, Hey, Keith, is that you? Say, <laughs> so, Yeah. And he said, say, How many days? 68 days. He said, That's great. He said, Don't you worry. We'll keep an eye on you. Nothing's going to happen to you. The world is filled with people who care about people. And uh, so it was a magnificent year, an absolutely magnificent year. And one thing led to another, to another. That's what sobriety does. One thing leads to another, to another, to another. And the world gets bigger and bigger. I remember uh, when I was doing things on my own, I always paid a terrible price. I decided I wanted to complete my education, my undergraduate degree in philosophy and theology, so I went back and signed up with a bunch of courses. It was over four months, right? so I write a bad check to the university I work for but I knew they'd take it out of my pay and, um, and I buy the books and I go home I'm going to take three courses I buy the books, I go home and I start to read the books I knew all the words but no thoughts happened and I panicked and I called my sponsor so he told me, he said, tomorrow you go back you apologize for writing a bad check he said, cancel the courses and uh, keep the books I said, why should I keep the books? he said, keep the books Right? So I canceled the courses, and I kept the books. And uh, one year later, the chairman of our department, Dr. Paul Bruns, who was the first paratrooper physician in the Army, he jumped into Normandy. He was a magnificent man. He was the chairman of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. That's where we had our services. And he, on Friday, he said, I'd like to see you on Monday, Keith. You know what that means. They're going to fire you. And um, so I think about it the whole weekend Talked to my sponsor, and he said, I understand you're doing a good job. They don't fire if you're doing a good job. And so I went in to see Paul. And he said to me, he said, said, we are so proud of what you've done. You've done a magnificent job. He said, I can't give you a raise because there was a wage price freeze in effect then. And he said, but what I can do is give you this. And he handed me an envelope, and I opened it, and I had a full scholarship to go as long as I wanted to go to Georgetown University. Now, you know, if you play football and you're an Irish Catholic, you want to go to Notre Dame. But Georgetown's the oldest Catholic university in the nation and really one of the most honored. And for a guy like me to get a scholarship to Georgetown University was beyond the pale. And I went down and my boss came in. He was a Jesuit priest. And he said to me, he had a Ph.D. in genetics, Ph.D. in philosophy, Ph.D., brilliant man. And he said to me, he said, did Paul give you the letter? I said, yes, he did. And he said, well, I'd like to give you this. And he gave me an envelope, and I opened it, and he would get credits for books because he taught in the medical school, he taught in the college, he taught in the graduate school. And they would give him credits for books in the bookstore, but he used the same books. The only books I ever bought for my education, I bought when I did it on my own. I took those three courses that semester. And uh, when I did it on my own, I paid the price. When I did it in God's will, in God's way, it was laid into my lap. What a way to live your life. And, you know, and I ended up publishing my thesis, and a bunch of things went on. It was just one thing after another, and my life has just been magnificent. I can't tell you what it's been like. You know, I had dad problems, and I believe that if you don't get it right with dad, you don't get it right with anybody. And I had always wanted my father's affirmation. He loved me. He couldn't have loved me more than he loved me. But he didn't say it the way I could hear it or the way that it meant anything to me. And I remember driving home to make amends to my father. And I'd drive 300 miles. We'd pour a cup of coffee. We'd sit down at his table. And five minutes a rage would well up inside of me. I'd get up and get in the car and drive back. And finally my father said to my mother, he said, I love that boy, but I worry about him. He drives a long way for a cup of coffee. And um, he never did understand me. And, um, and so my buddy Mike said to me, and uh, Sandy kept saying, keep praying. I think you're getting close. I think it's about to happen. Keep praying. I think you're real close. That's what Sandy always used to say. You know? And Mike said to me, he said, look, honor your father. He said, honor him. He said, that's a commandment with promise. And I said, what do you mean, honor him? He said, stop disagreeing with him. Stop doing everything. Stop doing anything that causes any dissension in your relationship. And, you know, my parents had blamed themselves for what had happened to me. And, uh, and that's the year that I began when I got an AA token. I would buy a second one, and I would write them a thank you note, and I would tell them, if it had not been for the fact that you taught me the difference between right and wrong, if I had not watched you live lives of great, lives of great principle, I would be dead. I owe everything to the fact that you're my parents. If they blamed themselves for my decline, why shouldn't they blame themselves for my recovery? And, uh, and, you know, so I began to honor my father. I stopped arguing with him. And, you know, neither of my parents had ever seen the ocean. You know, when you raise eleven kids, you don't have a car, and you're poor. You don't do a lot of traveling. And I had a beach house in North Carolina. And the name of the house was "CZ Does It," and uh, and I invited them down, and they fell in love with it. My father had retired, and they fell in love with it. And I was moving to Birmingham. I was given a I was a, had a corporate position, vice president of hospital corporation, and uh, and I said to him, I said, "Would you and mom, dad, would you and mom keep an eye on the house for me?" And uh, they kept an eye on her for six years. And uh, my mother said, you know, son, we had our honeymoon and all our vacations all at one time. And they loved it. They just loved it. I have a picture of them sitting on the swing with their arm around one another. It was just one of the most beautiful things in the world. They just loved one another so much. And uh, they were great examples to me. And... Um, and I would stop by. I had some hospitals in the Carolinas, and whenever I was visiting them, I would stop by and see my dad, and we would talk. And I never, ever disagreed with him on anything. And, um, and one day he said to me, he said, son, remember when you went to work? And I said, yeah, Dad. I said, I worked in the bowling alley. And he said, remember I took you to, to lunch? I said, no, I don't remember that. He said, yeah, I took you to Louis' hot dog stand. He said, Do you remember what you had? I said, well, I'll go out on a limb here, Daddy. I have a hot dog? And he laughed. He said, of course you did. He said, do you remember what you drank? And I said, well, I always drank orange pop. He said, not that day. He said, that day you drank root beer because I drank root beer, and I think you thought men who worked drank root beer. And he said, I walked you down to the bus stop, and I said, son, do you want me to come with you on your first day? And you said, no, thanks, Dad. I'll do it myself. He said, I watched the bus till it was out of sight, and you never looked back. He said, from that day on, you never let me help you. He said, all your brothers and sisters, let me help them go to college, and you never let me help. He said, you put yourself through high school, you put yourself through college, you never let me help you. And it finally dawned on me why I owed my father an amends. I robbed my father of what he was put on this earth to do, and that is to be a father. So I was coming through town the next month, and I borrowed $1,000 from him. (laughs) And I put it in a bank for a couple of months, and then I drew it out, and I took it back to him. And from then on, we were just like that, just like that. And uh, I allowed him to be my father. And, you know, I saw the depth of his character and his knowledge and his worldly experience. And I would run things by him all the time. And his answer was always the same. Have you talked to your friends in Alcoholics Anonymous? They have to be the finest and the smartest people in the world. That was his take on you. And, you know, uh, he moved back up to Ohio because his uh, sister was very ill. And my brother, Denny, God bless him, what a wonderful man. He he bought the house my father was born and raised in. And he remodeled it and gave it to my dad to live in. And uh, and my father, uh, my mother had passed away. Uh, My brother, Terry, passed away. Three years later, my mom was dying of cancer. And I'll never forget, we went up to my brother Larry, who by then was sober, and we went up to uh, to see her. And we were sitting there, and my niece came in, and she was new in AA. And she said, Uncle Keith, Uncle Larry, you have to come to the meeting. My sponsor, Barbara's going to speak tonight. And I said, sweetheart, I'd love to hear Barbara speak. I said, but I was going to spend the evening with Mom. And my mother, who I thought was asleep, said, son, look at me. <laughs> and I looked at her, and she pointed that finger. She said... You must always go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Those were the people who brought my boys home to me. And I knew the tremendous depth, her love for you. And so I did go to that meeting that night. And I spent a couple days with her. And I'd sit up at night and read scripture. I'd pray the rosary. And she would wake up from time to time and pray with me and then go back to sleep. And I held her hand one night. And I said to her, Mom, I'm so sorry you have to suffer this pain. She said, Son, don't be sorry. She said, God accepts everything as a prayer, even pain. She said, I have offered my pain that all my children come closer to God. And I said, Mom, you suffered pain to bring us into the world, and you're using your pain on the way out of the world for us. And uh, she passed away, and, you know, she listed the things that she wanted in her coffin. And every year I sent her a chip the very top of the list of the things she wanted in her coffin to take with her was my 23-year chip. And, uh, and, you know, six years later, my father was very close to the end. And uh, I went up to see him, and uh, he got out the pictures I'd never seen. And one of them, I knew he was a great baseball player because some of his friends had told me how good he was, but he'd never say anything about himself. And he showed me this picture, when uh, they were the Ohio State High School baseball champions. And I said, Dad, I heard you were a good ball player. He said, I was okay. I said, I heard you were All-State. He said, well, yeah. And I said, uh, were you All-State your senior year? He said, well, I was All-State all four years. And I said, I heard that you had a major league contract offer. He said, well, actually, I had three. And I said, why didn't you take them? And he said, well, I had a good job in the factory, and Mom and Dad were both sick, and they needed me at home. And I said to him, How do you learn to think like that? I've been going to meetings for 28 years to learn to think. And I said, why didn't you ever tell us you were a great ball player? And he said, well, you and Denny worked so hard at being good ball players, I didn't want to say anything that might discourage you. What a man. And, you know, I went back to North Carolina, and uh, Joey and I worked for a while, and we got a call that it was very close. And we went back up, and my father was very, very close. He was in and out, in and out. We stood around his bed, and I knelt down, and I held my father's hand next to my heart, and I whispered in the ear, Dad, it's okay to go. Every day I will pray for everything you pray for. He was a real man of prayer. From that day till this day, I have prayed for whatever he prayed. And I told him it was okay to go, and we prayed to Hail Mary, which was his favorite prayer. And we prayed the Lord's Prayer. And when we said amen, my father squeezed my hand and went into eternity. And I left the room, and I said to my wife, Julia, I'm not supposed to live like this. I'm supposed to be down the street, drinking up enough courage to come here. But of course I'm supposed to live like this. I live like this, because this is how you taught me to live. You and God gave me this precious gift called sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous as a result of the spiritual awakening, which is the great promise of this program. As long as I live, I will never, ever be able to repay you. God bless you and thank you.